We're going to be reading from the book of Revelations this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, our Frontlines team is carrying some up right now. You can just raise your hand and they will bring one to you. Uh, if you would like to have a Bible, you are more than welcome to take this one home with you. So once again, we're reading from the book of Revelations, the last book in our Bibles, and we have the reference up there. We'll be starting in chapter 21. So, Revelations 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? We are good. I hope that uh, thus far this morning we have been able to taste and see that the Lord is good and that his mercies are new every morning. It's been good to be together. Well, as I mentioned last week, we are uh, likely, last week and then this week's messages are likely potentially the most controversial of our entire question series. And so I hope that you're ready and prepared today to jump in as we did last week. Um, as I also mentioned last week, each of these weeks and the entire question series is really based upon answers to three questions which help you and I define what our worldview is. And I want to put these on the screen again. The first is a question of authority. Who has the right to tell me what to do? Everybody in this room has an answer to that question. Who has the right to tell me what to do? It's a question of authority. Second question is one of knowledge. Who actually knows what is best for me? Who knows what is best for me? And then thirdly, a question of trustworthiness. Who loves me and wants what is best for me? Now, regardless of the fact of whether or not you're a Christian or you identify as one, or maybe you identify as an atheist, an agnostic, maybe you're here, like last week, you're here representing the LGBTQ plus community, and you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm here because I want to hear, I want to learn what the Christian view and what the Christian perspective is on this. Every single one of us answer these three questions. And those that are choosing to follow Christ are every single day choosing to die to themselves and answer these questions in light of who God is, what he has done, who we are, and then ask the question of what we are to do. Before we jump into answering the question, what about gender, let's take a moment to pause, quiet ourselves, ask the Lord how we're feeling, maybe inviting Jesus into that, and then we'll jump into our message this morning. So, Holy Spirit, we do invite you yet again. Be our vision. May we see the, way, the world the way that you see. Change our hearts, break our hearts, God, for the things that break yours. 
I don't say that lightly. I say that honestly and truthfully that we need our hearts broken to care about the things that you care about and you care about people. We thank you that you have a heart of compassion. Pray that we would be a people of compassion as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning uh, by reading you a bit of a testimony from Nikki Hayden, 26, psychology student from London. I believe this is the UK. She writes, Until I was about four or five, I didn't know I wasn't a girl, to be honest with you. One of my earliest memories about five years old was being yelled at by a teacher for going to the toilet with the girls. About the same age, I realized I was different to these other boys. At the age of nine, I refused to have my hair cut. I didn't have it cut until I was 16 because having it cut was such a torment to me. School was extremely difficult. I got bullied a lot. I was picked on for being too thin, for being feminine, for not liking football, for hanging around with girls, for having long hair. They mocked everything they could think of in terms of gender and in terms of sexuality. I learned what trans meant through YouTube. I knew how I felt, but I didn't know there was a term for it. I was basically just trying to Google what I felt. A light bulb went off in my head and I thought, this explains all of the issues I've had as long as I can remember. I never really told my family. They know, but I just started transitioning. I never said, oh, by the way, my mom asked me if I was transgender when I was around 19 after I'd already transitioned. She said, well, are you? And I was like, are you blind? On a day-to-day basis, I don't tell people I'm transgender. The thing about trans people is we feel very normal. It's the way we are. It's only when people say you're not normal that you feel that way. I've also been extremely feminine. I've always felt that way. I can't say that I ever felt like a boy. I just had to live as a boy for the first 16 years of my life. Now, whether or not you agree with this testimony of this person and the conclusions of Nikki that you come to, one thing is for sure. What we are talking about today is not an issue. We are talking about people. People whom God loves, people whom God desires, people whom God desires to have a relationship with. And so we can't dismiss this as some cultural issue. We have to identify that what we are talking about today is people. According to a Transgender Remembrance Day poster, 34% of trans people attempt suicide. They're actually 19 times more likely to take their own lives than the average human being. 64% are bullied, 73% of trans people are harassed in public, and 21% of trans people avoid going out in public altogether due to fear. This is the reality of the group of people that we are addressing today. Really, all of us need to be careful and thinking about how we're going to address Now, before we jump in, there are some terms that I need to define for us to help us understand what we're talking about today. The first term is biological sex. What are we talking about? It's as male or female, typically with reference to chromosomes, gonads, sex hormones, and internal reproductive anatomy and external genitalia. We then have gender. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. Deborah Hirsch writes this in her book, Redeeming Sex. When many of us think about the term gender, we think of biological sex. And historically, that was the case. The two terms were used interchangeably. 
But over time, the two terms have become distinguished and more precise definitions given. The term sex as a category is now generally used to refer to a person's biological sex, male or female, and gender to the non-physical physiological aspects of being male or female, i.e. the cultural expectations for femininity or for masculinity. Or, as one author says, gender is a social status based on the convincing performance of femininity or masculinity. We then have the term gender identity. What is gender identity referencing? It's how you experience yourself or think of yourself as male or female, including how masculine or feminine a person may feel. And then we have the term transgender, and this is what is transgender. This is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience or present and express or live out their particular gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. In other words, a transgendered individual often feels they're trapped in the wrong body. Mark Yarhouse, in his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, writes this, to discuss being transgender is to discuss one's experience of gender identity, one's sense of oneself as male or female, and how that psychological and emotional experience is not aligning with one's birth sex. We then have the term that is now known as gender dysphoria. This is the experience of distress. Notice it's distress, friends. The experience of distress associated with the incongruence wherein one's psychological and emotional gender identity does not match one's biological sex. A person is displeased with their body and their particular place in it. Last week we talked about same-sex attraction or homosexuality. And as one person put it, if homosexuality is about who you want to go to bed with, transgenderism is about who you want to go to bed as. Now some statistics right off the bat. Many people will ask, well, how many people are part of the trans community? It's between 1 in 215 or 1 in 300 people. Or, in other ways, it's 0.3% of the population. So in Canada, this would be roughly 111,000 people. And once again, these are 111,000 people whom God loves and desires and wants to have a relationship with. Now, additionally, it's important to note that these stats are continually on the rise. And many people attribute that to the growing uh, awareness in our culture of varying definitions of gender expression. For those that are actually diagnosed with what we defined as gender dysphoria, the numbers are actually much smaller. For men, it's actually more common. It's 1 in 10,000. And for women, it's 1 in 20,000. Now, as these numbers indicate, gender dysphoria is actually quite rare in a very small portion of our actual overall population that are actually diagnosed with gender dysphoria. As I said, transgender is an overall term. Now, the question we then ask ourselves is, okay, how do we think about this? How do we think about this in our culture? And Mark Yarhouse, uh, in his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, which I'd highly recommend, talks about three frameworks that people typically interpret and understand the transgender community and transgenderism just in general. And these are them right here. The first, he calls the integrity framework. This identifies the phenomenon of gender incongruence as confusing the sacredness of maleness and femaleness and specific resolutions as violations of that integrity. Now, this framework specifically reminds us of God's creational intent and is the primary lens that many evangelical Christians use. 
The second framework is the disability framework. This identifies gender incongruence as a reflection of a fallen world in which the condition is a disability, a non-moral reality to be addressed with compassion. The condition, as the disability framework says, is not something that someone chooses, and therefore they're not morally culpable for having it. The third framework is then the diversity framework, and there are two forms. There's the weak form, and in the weak form, it highlights transgender issues as reflecting an identity and culture to be celebrated as an expression of diversity. But then there is a strong form of the diversity framework, which is the complete deconstruction of sex and gender. It's to redefine sex and it's to redefine gender altogether. And many of these individuals will, who have this framework will see sex reassignment surgery as the first and best option for somebody who's struggling with gender dysphoria. Now, as we look at those frameworks, you know, you might say, oh, I clearly fall into this one, or I clearly fall into this one. And what's interesting to note is that different family members who have maybe a particular individual within their family who identifies with the trans community will think about their, this particular family member in different ways. There was one uh, example in which a sister was talking about her sister who was, was identifying as the opposite gender, and she said, um, you know, my sister, uh, my brother couldn't help having this. The individual who was identifying as transgender was saying, you know, this is just who I am, which is two of the frameworks, disability, the, the, the sibling used, and then identifying the diversity, the person who's actually in the community, or identified with the community. Now the question then is, as followers of Jesus, which framework do we fall into? How do we think about this in our culture, in our lives? How do we think about those individuals that we're likely uh, meeting on a day-to-day -day basis maybe? Maybe you know somebody? How do we think about this? And everyone's framework is based on a story. It's based on their worldview. It's based on how do I make sense of the world in which I live? And in the Christian framework, we think about our lives in, in the way of the story of God, which is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We think about our lives in that way, that God created, but then Adam and Eve sinned and there was a fall. We then no, of Jesus who brings redemption and then in restoration when Jesus returns and renews and restores and puts back together everything that is broken and has fallen apart. And so that's the framework that we live in. And I believe it's actually the most helpful framework for us in trying to decipher for ourselves how do we actually think about the trans community and how do we think about what it means to follow Jesus in light of this. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please go with me? Genesis 1 verse 1. And we're just going to walk through the biblical story and see, and hopefully I'll help us understand how we can think about answering this question of what about gender as we look at the scriptures. Genesis 1 verse 1. The very first book in the entirety of the scriptures, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right off the bat, first book, first verse in the entire scriptures, what do we know? Well, we understand that we have a creator, and what this means is that the world and everything in it is not an accident. We have purpose, we have design, and there's an original intention built into the very fabric of who we are. It can't be overstated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go to the, one of the final verses, Genesis 1 verse 31, we read this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, if you know the words, very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now we're going to go back in a few moments to see what specifically God creates. But it's important to note that as God creates, he sees everything that he has made as very, as very good. Which includes both the ways in which he created and the subject of what he created. He had a blueprint for his creation and he executes on it. If we go back a few verses, Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them. Well, what do we see here? Firstly, God creates humanity in his image. Now, this is unique about humanity versus the rest of creation. Nothing else is made in God's image like you and I are. Now, here's what this means. It means that we have intrinsic worth and dignity. We are the summation of the entirety of our parts, both our mind, our body, and our spirit. And then we are commissioned as God's created beings made in his image to do three things, to represent God, to reflect who God is to the rest of the world, and then third, to rule on God's behalf. So what this means is that we belong to God first and foremost and do not have the right to rewrite or reconfigure what has been given to us. Second point that we see in verses 26 to 27 of Genesis 1 is that God creates two sexes to best reflect his image. Notice what he does. God creates male and female, which means biological sex and their differences are purposed and they are important. Here's what Andrew Walker from the book God and the Transgender Debate writes. Maleness and femaleness, according to the Bible, aren't artificial categories. The differences between men and women reflect the creative intention of being made in God's image. Preston Sprinkle, in his paper, A Biblical Conversation About Transgender Identity, writes, A biblical view of the human body suggests that biological sex is integral to human identity. That is, to be human is to be embodied, and to be embodied is to be sexed. So what this means is that in order to best reflect God to the world, we need both male and female. Now, there is a uniqueness to each sex, that each sex on its own could and cannot rep represent to the watching world of who God is and what he is like. What we also understand is that male and female are equal and different. They're intended, they're not interchangeable. Man and woman have been commissioned to be fruitful and multiply, to have sex and to make children, and therefore a man is someone who can have sex with a woman, and a woman is someone who is able to become a one flesh with a man. Men and women were naked together, and they're not ashamed. Additionally, by creating two sexes that complement each other, God, as we talked about last week, is expressing a living illustration to point us towards himself, our complement. So one, we human beings, humanity is created in the image of God. God creates two sexes to best reflect that image. But then number three, and this is critically important, 
While God creates two sexes, he does not mandate rigid male and female gender expression or stereotypes. Gender, and in particular gender expression, is often based on a particular culture and society. Therefore, we as the church need to lean away from landing in stereotypes that God simply does not have. For example, men like loud noises in trucks. Women like quiet and pink. You can come up with your own ways of filling that in. God does not rigidly do that here. That is a cultural expression, cultural stereotypes. And so when an individual is born, and they're born and they're trying to identify with their biological sex, they're saying, does my expression, my gender identity, align with the way cultural gender identity has been created? And if that is rigid, no wonder they're going to have questions. So while God creates two sexes, he does not mandate rigid male and female gender expression or stereotypes. But the question is, well, why do we do that to gender? Why do we try to get these stereotypes figured out? Or, or why do people not align in their minds and their bodies? How did that happen? And for that, we go to Genesis 3, which is the fall, the second part of the story. And in Genesis 3, verses 4 to 5, we read this. It was read last week. It's important to read it again here today. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is speaking of the fruit of the tree. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent, or the Satan, tempts Eve in her response. Notice what it is. It's rather than trusting God, is to pursue her own authority, her own knowledge, her own trustworthiness. Now the result of that decision has also been a decision that has affected the world and each and every single one of us. The effects of this rebellion and this fall are not only all around us, it's also inside of us. You and I live with propensity to pursue our own rule and our own reign. That's why I know we're singing the song, Lord, I Need You. Like that is so counter to the culture in which we live. That you need something and someone beyond yourself. All facets of our lives, including human sexuality and the experience of our gendered selves, are corrupted and they're disordered. We all experience this to some degree or the other. And what this means is that every biological or psychological reality is not going to be an immediate reflection of God's will nor his desires. Notice one of the first effects of the humanity's rebellion in Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Think about that as it, as it is compared to what we're talking about today, about the question of gender. The result, and the, one of the first results of humanity's rebellion is feeling ashamed of and awkward about their bodies. Therefore, what this means is that it makes complete sense that someone would feel so uncomfortably and to have distress in their body, and that the pain here is very, very real. And what this means as well is that gender dysphoria is not sinful. The article that I read earlier of the testimony, the, the subtitle of the article is, is about people in the trans community saying, we didn't choose this for ourselves. We live in a broken and fallen world. Now, while that's the results of the fall, here's what it means for us on a day-to-day basis, for all of us. What this means is that you and I are not going to be good at understanding who we are or what we are because our hearts and our minds have been completely disordered. 
You and I will not be very good at understanding who or what and answering the three questions of authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. Secondly, we're not going to be qualified at finding nor creating our, only, our, our own identities. What we need to realize is the only identity that is good for us is the one that God has given us. And that includes our bodies and the biological sex that he has created us in. Because our minds, thirdly, because our bodies and our minds are disordered, we can't actually fully trust one over the other. We can't say, I'm going to trust my mind on this case. I'm going to trust my body in this case. And then fourthly, no matter what we do to our bodies, what we need to understand as well is that our bodies cannot ultimately fix our bodies. Our bodies, like our minds, need to be redeemed. And if you're looking to your body to fulfill you, you will ultimately be disappointed. All of us can identify with that. How many of us have stared in the mirror, unclothed recently, and said, I really love what I'm seeing here? Right? And so we're all, what we're all looking for is fulfillment and redemption in this incongruence between our minds and our bodies. And that's the next part of God's story, redemption. Where does redemption come from? John 1, verses 9 to 14a, to be specific. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then we read this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Praise God, he does not leave us to our fallen condition. And Jesus Christ comes, notice, in a physical body. He lives an embodied life and he dies a bodily death and is raised in a resurrected body. Therefore, he comes to restore our physical bodies and all of the incongruence that we feel and express. And what this means... You need to hear this. What this means is that physical redemption is only possible in Jesus Christ, not in our bodies. And the scriptures tell us that through Christ that we can actually be changed. Through Christ, we are a new creation, adopted as God's beloved children and given a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 tells us this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, what does it mean? You're maybe like, what does it mean to be a new creation? Sounds lovely. What does it actually mean? Love what Andrew Walker writes. To be a new creation is to know why the world is the way that it is, why our bodies are the way that they are, and why our minds think as they do. It is to be equipped with the power of God's Holy Spirit to live in relationship with God. A new creation in Christ recognizes that even in broken minds, living in broken bodies, living in a broken world, there is a definite and clear, very good blueprint of creation. A new creation has ceased to belong to this old fallen world, even as they live in it. For they are walking toward the full newness of renewed and re-perfected world. So we're a new creation through Christ, but then we're also adopted and given a new identity, which changes everything. 
This is what Sprinkle writes in his paper. The ultimate question is not who do I see myself as, but who does God see me as? And if my understanding of scripture is correct, then our bodies play a significant role in determining our identity since we are sexually embodied creatures. So important. But all of this leads us to the final act, the final part of God's story, which is restoration. And Sonia read this for us earlier. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I love at weddings, watching the husband and wife have their first dance. Reminds me of the picture of what we can look forward to. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God will be with them as their God. For he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Just listen to this. Close your eyes for a moment. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What's the section of Scripture doing? This section of the Scripture is describing for us the future reality for those who have been adopted in Christ and their eternal destination the complete restoration of creation to the way God intended it to be, which includes, friends, the restoration of the congruence between our minds and our physical bodies. Another quote from Sprinkle on this point, if we were created male and female, and if this creation was deemed very good, and if our future glorified existence will be in a sexed body, then there's every reason to honor and celebrate our embodied sex now. And this future reality changes then how we live in the present. It gives us patience in our pain. Philippians 3 says this, verse 20 to 21, We await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, listen to this, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it gives us patience in the pain, but also gives us hope for the future that Jesus came and died and rose in order to offer you his spirit today and to offer you the life and the unity that you may be searching desperately for. Now, if this is God's story, right? We're going back to the initial question. For those who are in Christ, what is the Christian response and the framework for gender dysphoria in the here and in the now? And this is what Yarhouse calls the integrated framework because it takes both the integrity, the disability, and the diversity into question and it applies them. First one is that as believers, we affirm the integrity of sex differences that we saw in creation. Secondly, we express compassionate care and management of gender dysphoria because we understand the fall. We understand what it's done, not only to those people over here, but you here. And in here, we all need redeemed. We all need to be restored. 
And then thirdly, it means that we can foster meaning, making, identity, and community in light of what Jesus has done and what he's going to do in the future. If there's any people who ought to be the most compassionate people because we understand what God has done on our behalf and that new identity welcomes us into a loving family of brothers and sisters, that's what a meaning-making community can look like. But friends, the transgender community has looked at the church and said, you're not welcoming me into community. So I'm going to go to people who will welcome me as my community. Now the question then is, well, how does this integrated framework work out practically with those experiencing gender dysphoria? Right? How do, okay, that's nice. You've got a framework here. How does it actually work itself out practically? And in the Christian worldview, there are two varying responses, okay? And that just expresses the complexity on this. I have read four books, numerous papers, numerous testimonies on this. Extremely complex. But in the Christian world, there's two varying responses, but they both fall on, if you sort of think of the pendulum of our culture, they both fall on the same wing. And so the option number one of how do we respond, this would be a Yarhouse suggestion, is that we help people find the least invasive ways for them to manage their dysphoria. We help people find ways that are the least invasive ways to manage their dysphoria. This approach will use a reversible or non-invasive versus non-reversible and invasive scheme. So reversible or non-invasive options, they might include cross-dressing, and some would even go as far as saying hormone therapies. There's then the irreversible or non-invasive or invasive options, which would be a full sex reassignment surgery. So we'd find the least invasive ways to help somebody manage the dysphoria. Or option number two is to live in complete submission to the biological sex that you are born with. Now, I realize that's, that's difficult. As we were singing this morning, like last week, the surrender that all of us are called to in Christ. But certain, certain folks are the different level of surrender. That's there here. Now, while this may be extremely challenging mentally, the focus here is on trusting the physical body that you have been given by God and fighting for congruence and uniformity empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is obviously an objection in our culture to this integrated approach, which would be the other end of the spectrum. If these two options fall on the spectrum of trusting biological sex, managing the dysphoria, or trusting the biological sex in both, both views, there are those that argue this and will suggest that sex reassignment is the best option for someone who is struggling with gender dysphoria. And friends, I have to be honest, there are significant problems with this view. And I recognize I'm putting a target on my back by, for suggesting this. But the research on this area, and in particular in gender dysphoria, is extremely inconclusive. Extremely inconclusive. Now, while research in this area is extremely controversial, there has been research conducted that has concluded that surgery, friends, does not always solve the mental pain and the incongruence individuals face even after surgery. You can read an article that The Atlantic put out um, about folks that have detransitioned after they have transitioned. Highly recommend looking into this. Secondly, causation research, and what I mean by causation research is what causes gender dysphoria is extremely incomplete. And many people start with a hypothesis and they start with uh, some sort of like, I want this to be the outcome, and that totally guides their research. 
but causation research is extremely inconclusive. And because this research is inconclusive, it's actually hard to suggest a best treatment plan, especially with something as irreversible as surgery. Thirdly, and this is the scary reality, is that there's extremely high child desistant statistics. What I mean by that is close to 80 to 90% of children that wrestle with gender dysphoria, alignment with their biological sex, by the time that they're adolescents or adults, revert to their biological sex. 80 to 90%. So how do we choose our approach? And at the end of the day, we, the way that we respond is really a question about our operating worldview, what we talked about at the beginning, authority, knowledge and trustworthiness, and what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to follow the way of Jesus. And so we have to answer the question, well, what is discipleship? And this is one aspect of what discipleship to Jesus is. Discipleship to Jesus is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our lives and increasingly submitting ourselves to him. And what this means is it includes the submitting to him in our bodies, and we must trust Jesus with that as well, our bodies. If we are in Christ, our bodies are now identified by what Jesus has done for them, and therefore we are called to offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And discipleship to Jesus, you may be saying, well, being a disciple of Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is motivated by love for Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And so if you don't love Jesus, the conclusions that I have arrived at here are not going to sound very good. But you have to ask the question, do I want Jesus? Do I understand who Jesus is, what he has done for me, and therefore what that means in the way that I live out my discipleship? Now, while I recognize this framework might be helpful, it raises a whole host of very practical, common questions. And so I want to take a few moments here to answer some of these questions. The first common question is, well, what do I teach my kids? Right? What do I teach my kids? And I'd start with this, and I hope I've done it well for you today, is walking out the story of God. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I would also say you need to create an atmosphere of listening and understanding. You need to create an atmosphere of listening and understanding. And I would say you also need to be extremely cautious about rigid gender stereotypes. Extremely cautious. If David was writing poetry and singing songs and dancing before the Lord, we better be discipling young men to dance before the Lord to write poetry, and to express themselves. Second question, well, how do I respond if my child expresses incongruence in their sex and in their gender? Number one, assure your child of your love for them and your desire to walk with them through their feelings. Assure them of your love for them and your desire to walk with them in their feelings. I would encourage you to use the integrated framework. And as I said, be generous with gender stereotypes. A boy by the name of Mason, who struggles with gender atypical, writes this. The irony is that it is precisely rigid stereotypes that drive gender nonconforming young people into the arms of transgender or gay communities. Now, I, I do, at this point, need to caution a warning. 
And many of us might be aware of this, others will not, but schools and governments are getting involved. Governments first, and as a result, schools. Recently, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled on a case in British Columbia and ordered that a 14-year-old girl receive testosterone injections without parental consent. The court also declared that if either of her parents referred to her by using female pronouns or addressing her by her birth name, the parents could be charged with family violence. And so you need to be assuring your kids of your love for them, creating an atmosphere of listening and of love. Then the next question is, well, how does the church respond? Right? How does the church respond? Number one, I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. We have to think deeply. You and I are responsible for getting clarity and having thoughtful reflection on the biblical perspective of concepts like sex and gender. We do no one any favor by avoiding these topics, especially given the prevalence of it in our culture. A book I would highly recommend, Understanding Gender Dysphoria by Mark Yarhouse. He's one of the leading psychological uh, psychologists on the forefront of this research. Highly recommend his book. It's extremely helpful. Secondly, we need to be a people of both grace and truth. Grace and truth. Humility because of God's grace. The church could demonstrate greater humility about what we know and do not know about the topic of gender dysphoria. Because friends, as I said, there is a lot of very inconclusive research. So we have to be cautious about what we know and what we don't. And then truth. We need to understand and celebrate the sacredness of male and female sex differences. In her book, Love Thy Body, which is another excellent book by Nancy Piercy, culture says your body is an accident. Creation and our understanding of God is that your body is not accidental. It is a gift and it is a call because you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Next, I'm going to say accommodation. We need to create space and room for those in our community who are wrestling with gender and gender identity. For example, in our plan to protect policy, which is our kids' policy for all the things that go on down the hallway, we have made the commitment that we are going to provide a gender-neutral bathroom space for those visiting us on a Sunday morning if they so wish such a bathroom. And we're going to use the pronoun of choice that a person expresses if they want that. Okay, that's fine. We're going to also be a people of generous spaciousness. We want to create room for people to share how they're struggling, just as I talked about last week, that we need to create room for people to talk about their same gender attraction. Mark Yarhouse, in this book, if you want a person to choose a path that seems more redemptive, you will want to be part of a redemptive community that facilitates that kind of decision-making for every person who is a member. And I'm going to say it again, because this is another one, avoid rigid gender stereotypes. We want to be extremely cautious in the sorts of men's and women's events that we plan. Extremely cautious. And also for those of you in this room that I know work in parachurch ministries, practice extreme caution. We're doing a guy's night. What are you doing? Eating meat. Great. I'm out. Like, that's just for me, right? I don't eat meat. But you know what I mean? Like, we have to be so cautious about what it means to be a biblical man and a biblical woman. We're called to be followers and disciples of Jesus first. Husband and wife are a different question. You can go back to Cam's message from our series on Song of Songs. What a year it's been, eh? (laughs) 
Now you might say, well, what's the big deal? Right? What's the big deal with all of this? Let people do what they want. And friends, this is where I would offer some cautions of how far is too far. By and large, uh, within Canadian society, affirming care, you maybe have heard this language before, is being offered. And Jesse Single, in that Atlantic article, writes this, affirming care is far more humane than older philosophies. I would agree. But it conflicts at least a little with what we know about gender identity fluidity in young people. What does it mean to be affirming while acknowledging that kids and teenagers can have an understanding of gender that changes over a short span? What does it mean to be affirming while acknowledging that feelings of gender dysphoria can be exacerbated by mental health difficulties, trauma, or a combination of the two? This is written by a non-believing person. They're just saying we have to practice caution here with affirming care. Secondly, another caution is the dualism or the Gnosticism. And this is where Nancy Piercy in her book goes in extreme detail in which we, in our culture, almost glorify and celebrate the mind, but we deconstruct the body. It's mind over body every time. And the idea is that you are what you think and feel you are. You are not what your biology says that you are, which ultimately to the science profession is saying that scientific facts actually don't matter. This is, I have a couple quotes. This is a non-binary woman from BBC's Transgender Kids, which I'd also recommend you watch. It doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in. It's what you feel that defines you. This is that Gnosticism, the dual, uh, Gnosticism, dualism. Trans activists. It is a chance to, ref, it's a choice to refer to some bodies as male and some bodies as female. Not a fact. It is an ideological position and not scientific fact. There's this um, illustration, animation, and I'm not going into this to mock. I'm just simply expressing caution, okay? And this is being passed around in, in I think it's believes it's in the States. Um, it's called the gender unicorn. But you identify your gender identity, what you'd like to express that gender as, what the sex is assigned at birth, who you're physically attracted to, and then who you're emotionally attracted to. Nancy Piercy writes this in Love Thy Body about all of this. This is a devastatingly reductive view of the body. Young people are absorbing the idea that the physical body is not part of the authentic self, that the authentic self is the only autonomous choosing self. This is ancient Gnosticism in a new garb. Policies imposing transgender ideology on children as early as kindergarten are teaching them to denigrate their bodies, to see their biological sex as having no reluctance to who they are as whole persons. The two-story dichotomy causes people to feel estranged from their own bodies. Now, this worldview and philosophy is also behind the promotion of other identities. There's people identifying that they were born into the different wrong color of skin. There are people talking about believing that they should be dogs. And I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not saying and giving these as suggestions of trying to mock the situation. I'm just saying where this Gnosticism can lead us to in our culture. That those are called interspecies identities. Or there's also those who identify as transabled, believing that they're trapped in one's body with too many body parts. And some have sought cutting off their own limbs. Now, some of us are like, see, look how bad this is. Remember who we are talking about here. We are talking about people whom God loves, who we are called to have compassion towards, whom we are to love, and in whom some of us might be. 
The invitation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 should be the same invitation that we offer. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ought this to be our posture to invite people to come and see that the Lord is good and that you can rest with Jesus. And on this side of restoration, there will be an incongruence. But we trust that in a resurrected body, that that will be restored because of Christ. In closing, again from Nancy Piercy, Christians should be on the forefront of creative thinking to recover richer definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman. The church should be the first place where young people can find freedom from unbiblical stereotypes, the freedom to work out what it means to be created in God's image as holistic and redeemed people. A few years ago, um, our MC, we had a number of young people, teenagers in our group at that point, and one of these from the neighborhood, and one of these individuals said that she was going to bring her dad the next week, and I think in desire to, you know, let us know, she talked about how her dad was in the middle of a transition and so would like to be referred to with female pronouns. And I'll be honest with you guys, I did know, not know what I should have known. I didn't care in the way that I should have cared. And this individual, after about four weeks, stopped coming. There was someone in our group that refused to use the pronoun of choice. And this person walked away. May we be people that don't dismiss those that are seeking and are wrestling in areas of their identity. And we point them ultimately to Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and may I give you rest. In closing today, I want to invite you, if you would like to come forward for prayer, seek prayer on any of this. Maybe you need to come forward and you need to confess that you have not treated the trans community, the LGBTQ plus community very kindly. Maybe you haven't cared. Maybe that's what you need to come forward and confess and say, I identify these people are your children that you love and that you want adopted. Thank you, Jesus, you came and you care. So let's create that space at the front. And let's pray. Jesus, this has been a lot. I thank you for what you've done in my heart and in my life over the last number of weeks as I've prepared for this morning, waking me up, reminding me that there are people in our community, in my neighborhood, God, that you love far more than I could ever love, but whom I have dismissed. So change my heart, God. I pray that we would be a people that see others through the gospel, see the gospel that saved us, the good news of the gospel that can save this world because it's our desire that Guelph would look more like heaven. Give us a vision for what it means to be man and woman, what it means to be male and female. And may we reject the vision that we maybe have even created of stereotypes. May we submit to you, move from unbelief to belief in every area of our lives, and may we wrestle with deep and challenging questions because you invite us to do that and you don't leave us empty. I love you, Jesus. I want to love you more. 